Hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Jonathan Little. Today, we are going to be going through, very briefly, my newest book, 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em. Before we get to it today, I added sound panels that soak up the sound behind my computer. If the audio is better, let me know. I don't know if it will be or won't be. My wife is very mad at me that I have these things. They're very ugly. But I did it for all of you because you keep complaining in the comments section below. I appreciate all the comments below. I have made my wife mad at me for your sake. I hope you are all happy. You know what I did? I actually raised my computer. I'm not going to try to touch this. I had to raise my computer because I got a new computer chair. But now you're like way up here. You're like far higher than normal. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe I risk it. We may have to restart the stream if this gets screwed up. Uh, there we go. I was like, it's not right. Okay, you're down with the panels. Well, you can't see them. I have a new book that came out, 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em. Unfortunately for all of you who wanted a physical book, it sold out immediately. We ordered 2,500 copies of this book in the physical form, and they sold out before the book was even released. So that's good. That shows the power of YouTube and Twitch and Twitter and Instagram and social media in general, does it not? And uh, that's good. We have more books being printed. The official release date is actually not until December 7th. We should have more by then. If you already pre-ordered, you should be good to go. Isn't this your man cave? You can do whatever you want. No, this is absolutely not my space. I know it looked like it, but that's that. Um, I'm not the boss of anything anymore. <laughs> I'm just along for the ride. So um, there will be a Kindle version of the book coming out soon, an ebook, et cetera. All that will be available on December 7th. The audiobook is actually already available. You can uh, just search this on Amazon. Go to Amazon, type in 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em, or you can get it on dnbpoker.com. Where are we going through this book? What else do I need to talk about? Oh, let me show you something. Where is it? Where is it? Here it is. Look at this. We got a new piece of hardware in the house. We have just the webcam. Look at this. We have a new piece of hardware in the house. First place. First place trophy. Yeah, nice, nice, nice. Got that the other day. Also came with a poker bracelet. Yeah, got this the other day. How cute. I actually didn't win that. My wife won that. My wife won a poker tournament the other day for 12,000 bucks. I bubbled it. I had ace. I had nine, seven suited. I was against aces. The flop came nine, seven, three. I got it all in. He made a three. So I lost. I got no money, but my wife won the whole tournament. Congrats to her. I used her money to buy these sound panels that she's very, very mad about now. So that's how it goes. We have a, we have a nice give and take relationship. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> all right. Let's go ahead and get to it. 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em. This book is meant to be something that you can pick up and browse through quickly. If you want to read about a specific thing, you can find it. For example, adjust to the effective stack depth. This is not going to be a long section. It is literally one and a half pages long. It is short. I'm trying to be super duper concise. I'm trying to be very applicable. Check raise the turn. How long is this section going to be? It's going to be like two pages probably. One, two, three, four. Four pages long till we get to the next section. Facing a raise on the turn. One, two, three, four, five pages with a bunch of charts, right? This is meant for you to have so that you can sit down, 
read it and study it whenever you would like. You don't have to sit down and grind it for 15 hours at a time or anything like that. And if you ever have a question about a specific thing, you can go back and reference it. Hopefully, very quickly and easily. Is the TikTok version of jail educational? Is this the TikTok version? This is not a TikTok version. This is longer than TikTok. TikTok is like 12 seconds. This is more like five minutes. All right, as you see here, the book is broken down into a few sections. We have basic principles, pre-flop strategy, flop strategy, turn strategy, river strategy, and format adjustments, plus a few other topics. What size is the font? I don't know what size the font is. Normal. It's normal size. Same as all the other books. Fortunately for you, on Amazon or on Kindle, you can make it a whole lot bigger. We have some acknowledgments. Thanks to everyone who read through the book. I let, um, I don't know, 15 or 20 of all of you who said you wanted to help edit it, send in some edits. I appreciate that. That was very, very helpful. You need at least 12 size font. Look, I have no clue what the font is. I'm sure it's 12. It's normal size. I mean, look, look, look. I'll, sh I'll literally show you the book. I have this book in my hand. They sent me five copies. I thought they would last me forever. Here's the size of my finger. The font is almost the size of my finger turned sideways. I have small hands. Probably about 12. That said, if you cannot read small font, definitely get an e-reader, such as a Kindle app or a Kindle program or uh, an iPad or something like that, because you can make the font as big as you want it to be. Now look, we start by going through some of the basics, like focus on ranges. Hopefully all of you here know that you need to be focusing on ranges. I've been watching Game of Gold. Have you been watching the show Game of Gold? It is a, I presume it's gonna be on TV. It's a show put on by Poker Go and GG Poker. It's uh, sort of like a new iteration of Poker After Dark. It's a lot of fun. And I've been enjoying it a lot. However, it's very clear to me that either some of the players there are really hamming it up for the camera, thinking that they are Nostradamus and they know exactly what's happening, or they are very results-oriented. Um, there are a few players who are definitely not, and fortunately, it seems like the players who are, in my opinion, the best players in the field, are not results-oriented at all, as they shouldn't be. Um, but a lot of people, if they can tell that someone's beat, they're like, oh, you should fold, you should fold, but in reality, it's like a super easy call spot, right? And the better players are like, yeah, you just got to call and lose. Whereas the, let's call them the weaker players, are more like, oh, you got to fold. How did you not know they had it, right? But you got to focus on ranges. This is literally chapter one of this book. I wrote this book before Game of Gold came out, before I had this analysis, before I could actually get into the minds of some of these people who are playing poker. And look, you got to focus on ranges. You have to realize that just because your opponent has one specific hand this exact time does not mean that they have that hand every single time right? And uh, this is hopefully, I mean, look, it's literally chapter one. I <laughs> can't get more basic than this. This is mandatory requirements. Notice here, early position raising range. I don't know what hypothetical spot this is, but say someone raises, they can have all this stuff, right? And say they're going to continuation bet the flop with all this stuff. You cannot put them on ace-king on a king-six-3 board. You just can't do it. And that's because they have this whole range, right? And I, I guess, I mean, look, in my mind, this is just totally basic ABC knowledge, but I realized for some people it's not, which is why I made it chapter one, right? But from watching some people who actually have pretty good results at poker, talking about poker and analyzing poker in real time, watching people play, they don't know this. Or maybe they don't fully grasp this, right? And, and that's important. Will I be on season two? Oh, I sure hope so. 
I'm going to the World Series of Poker in the Bahamas in a week. Maybe you'll see me there. Maybe you'll be joining me. If you are there, make sure you say hi. And I know Gigi is to some extent putting that on. And, you know, I'm going to do my best to talk to people and hopefully find a way to get on the show. I think that would be amazing. These lectures are so beneficial for free. Yeah, zero dollars. How long did I grind sit and goes? I grinded sit and goes from when I was 18 to 21 years old for about three years. Learn to count the combinations of hands. I apologize. This is the review review document. That's why this little watermark is here. Even I don't have the official PDF yet. I don't know why. I should probably get it. Okay. Do you all know how to count the number of combinations of hands? This is literally chapter two. This should not be hard. We have made a YouTube video on it. But understand, for each unpaired hand, there are 12 or 16 combinations of hands. Goodness gracious. There are 16 combinations of hands. 12 offsuit four suited. As you can see here, we can add the ace of clubs, king of clubs, ace of clubs, king of diamonds, ace of clubs, king of hearts, ace of clubs, king of spades. Same thing for diamonds, hearts, and spades. Down the diagonal here, you see that these are all the suited versions, right? Ace, king of clubs, ace, king of diamonds, ace, king of hearts, ace, king of spades, right? So there are 12 offsuit combinations of every unpaired hand before the flop, and there are 16, uh, there are four combinations of every suited hand. Now, what if the flop becomes ace, six, four? How many combinations of seven, five are there? Take a second, think about it. Well, there are 16. However, however, as I say right here, look, I haven't read ahead, I just know this. However, if your opponent will only play seven, five suited, which will usually be the case unless they're in the big blind, there are only four combinations, right? Because even though there are 16 combinations of seven, five available, if you raise under the gun and the cutoff calls, they probably don't have the seven of diamonds, five of clubs, right? So you can remove that combination. This is no longer here. And this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, all, all these are no longer here, except for maybe the suited ones. And even then, maybe not even the suited ones, right? So there may actually be zero combinations of that available, logically. I think a lot of people think that just because a combination could exist means that it is in your opponent's range or potentially in your opponent's range. And it's not. I can tell you, if you raise under the gun, there's 0% chance I have the 7-5 offsuit or suited if I'm in second position and I play the hand because I will literally fold it every single time, right? And that's important to realize. So that will help you play better both pre-flop and post-flop. All right, what about if you know someone will play every combination of every hand that is available for, let's say, ace-king, right? You always play the ace-king. And there's an ace on the board. How many combinations of that are possible now? Say the flop comes ace, six, four. You raise under the gun. You know the player in second position literally never three bets any single hand. How many combinations of ace-king are available? Well, say the flop comes ace of hearts, six of spades, four of clubs, right? Now you see there's no more ace of hearts available, so you can remove these, right? You struggle with combinatorics. Well, we're, I'm literally teaching you right now. This is not a difficult concept. All you do is you take the number of aces remaining in the deck that are possible and multiply that by the number of kings that are possible. Three aces are left because the ace of hearts is on the board. Four kings are left. Three times four is 12. And that's it. Say it right down here. Three times four equals 12. There are 12 combinations because there are three aces left and four kings left. And that's it. That's it for at least figuring out combinations of specific hands. Um, what about how many combinations of ace six are available, right? Well, for ace six, there's three aces, three sixes, three times three is nine, right? As you can see here, you remove the ace of hearts and the six of clubs, slash them out, we have nine remaining, right? What if they only play ace six suited? 
Well, on this A6-4 board, there are A6 of diamonds and spades, right? So there's two. On this A6-4 board, there are three spades, diamonds, and clubs, right? What if the board was Ace-A6? How many combinations of 6-5? Well, there's one 6 on the board, so three 6s times four 5s is 12 6-5s, assuming they play all the combinations of it. Suited ones, there'd be only three. Right? Slick Rick, good morning. Hope you're having a great day. Slick Rick has been crushing it. I've been coaching Slick Rick for about two months now. One hour a month, one hour a week. So far, he's only won about $100,000. Tough life. Could be up more. Fortunately, we've actually seen some hands. He squandered about 20000 bucks by making blunders. <laughs> Slick Rick's doing great. I'm very, very happy for Slick Rick. He's absolutely crushing it. And uh, we've recorded those videos, all of our coaching sessions, and put them in pokercoaching.com. So... If you're a Poker Coaching Premium member, you can go back and watch all of our sessions. And we're going to be doing sessions for the next, well, year, give or take. Maybe longer. Who knows? And um, you can watch all those. We'll see the progression. It'll be a lot of fun. Anyway, we discussed comb combinations of hands before the flop and on the flop in this scenario. In, in this section of the book, I'm not going to go through and read this whole book to you. We discussed pairs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We discussed um, suited hands after the flop. Say... Someone raises, and someone calls, and the flop comes ace of spades, nine of spades, two of spades. Well, look at all these suited hands that are potentially reasonable to be played, right? All these hands that are not in gray. If the ace of spades is on the board, notice that removes a lot of the combinations of suited hands that are possible for your opponent to logically have, right? I mean, let's count the number of them, right? We have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, that's 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. There's 37 combinations here. Right? So, if the ace is on the board, that removes about a third of the combinations of all of the potential flushes. And if there's a nine on the board, that removes one, two, three, four, five, six more of them. We're down to like 40% of potential flushes available. That's very different if the flop was five, four, two of spades, right? Notice if the five, the four, and the two, that removes one, two, three, four, five, six. Six only combinations, right? So, on ace, jack, nine, there actually aren't that many potential flushes in your opponent's range. Whereas on four, three, two, there's a whole lot of potential flushes in your opponent's range. At least way more, proportionally, right? And that's an important concept to notice. Thought we are going to get through a lot of this book. Chapter three, do not be results-oriented. Kind of goes along with chapter one. We discussed that. Don't be results-oriented. Sometimes you're going to lose. This is something we've dealt with with Slick Rick, actually, where Slick Rick presents me a hand, and he's like, I'm not sure if this was a bad play or not. Or maybe he thought it was a bad play because he lost. But, I mean, that's the tough thing about poker, right? A lot of these scenarios may or may not be bad plays. And to be fair, maybe you make just like a slightly loose preflop call, which was maybe bad, and then you have to triple barrel it off in some silly spot, but it becomes like a really logical play with your particular hand. So yeah, maybe playing the hand to begin with was bad, but once you made that little mistake, probably cost you, I don't know, a dollar in equity, you have to run some big bluff because that's just going to be the right way to play this hand. And that's how poker goes sometimes, right? So you have to be very, very careful with the idea of was my play actually bad or was it just a spot where it's going to fail, right? I mean, you have to realize that your bluffs are going to be failing a large chunk of the time. They should be failing a large chunk of the time. And if they're not, you're not bluffing nearly often enough. What book is this? This is my new book. 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em. There are links. There are links down there below. Go click them. Get them. Take advantage of your opponent's mistakes. Obviously, don't just sit there and be a GTO robot against people who are making mistakes. That would be a mistake. 
You're gonna leave a lot of money on the table. Do not play honestly, quote unquote honestly. I don't mean to lie and cheat and steal. I mean, don't play super duper straightforward. I mean, I literally say right here. A lot of players who start learning no limit hold'em think a reasonable strategy is to start with decently strong preflop hands than to try to get their money in or just flash around preflop looking to flop a strong hand and then get their money in. They simply want to get the nuts and put their money in. And, you know, this is not that bad of a strategy against players who are legitimately terrible at poker. But if your opponents are anywhere near competent at all, that's not going to work because they're going to realize, okay, when you put in your money, you have the super nuts. And if you have the super nuts, then, well, just fold, right? Only 45 likes. People don't like educational content, Kevin Smith. If we've learned one thing here, only 45 people like educational content. If you enjoy educational content, if you enjoy me being here in this morning, bright and early, 9 a.m. on Monday morning, click the like and subscribe button down below. Click the notification bell. Click all the buttons. Tell your friends. I would appreciate it. So while I say don't play honestly, I also say don't play overly fancy, right? I think fancy play syndrome crushes a lot of players. When it comes to games, and game design in general, there are three main types of players. They're players who play socially for fun, to pass the time. And that is actually the majority of game players in general. Number two, they're players who like to push the boundaries of the game. These are players who get a little too fancy, either by making big folds or big bluffs or whatever. And then there are players who just want to win. You're going to find that the players who typically want to win make it to the top. They get very, very good. And this actually ruins a lot of games because with a lot of games, the best strategy is not always the most fun strategy. And if the most fun strategy is not at least okay, then that's not necessarily a sign of a good game. Ideally, a fun strategy is also a good strategy. That way people can get good and have fun. Now, look, fortunately, I think No Limit Hold'em is... Plenty fun, even if you are playing a very good strategy. But um, games like Seven Card Stud, I think, are an example of this, where the best strategy is not really all that fun. And, you know, the game has kind of died. Same thing with Five Card Draw, Five Card Stud, right? Like, play good starting cards, and if you do that, you'll be okay, kind of, right? And if you start off with really bad starting cards, you're just drawing stone dead, right? If you if you get, if you're, if you're playing Five Card Draw, and you have the Jack Nine Six Four Two. Well, that's not going to work. And, uh, you know, you, you just can't do it. And No Limit Hold'em, you can play the Jack-4 offsuit and win sometimes, right? So at least you can you can splash around a little bit, and it's not, well, it's pretty bad, but it's not um, detrimentally terrible. I mean, look, it is detrimentally terrible. But it's not, uh, you're not drawing to 0%, right? So you have to understand that Fancy Play Syndrome players um, usually do okay, but very often do they, they very rarely make it to the very top. And to get to the very top, you cannot be overly fancy. You just can't do it. If you get overly fancy, you're going to lose because you're essentially saying, my opponent plays so far from GTO that I can maximally adjust in some bizarre way to crush them. And that just doesn't happen for good players. If you do have fancy play syndrome, if you have fancy play problems, realize every time you make a play that is very far from the GTO play, you either need to have a very good reason to think this is a logical, strong, good exploit against your particular opponent in this particular scenario, or you got to realize you're losing money every time you make the play. And if you lose money every time you make a play, well, you're not going to win. You want to win money when you make plays, not lose money. This is going to sound bad. Do I say something that's going to get me in trouble? People don't like it when they feel like I'm insulting them. Do I say it or do I not? I'm not trying to insult anyone here. I'm just trying to give people... Um, 
good information. A lot of the players who win at $200 buy-in tournaments to $1,000 buy-in tournaments who struggle to move up, they almost always are either far too honest and straightforward or, or they are far too fancy. One of the two. Almost always. Typically, they're usually a little bit too fancy because the players who win at like the smallest stakes games usually are just playing really straightforward. All you have to do to win against players who are really bad is just make good hands, put your money in, easy game. Um, but to beat those players, you often win by kind of running them over, right? You win by making plays that make them fold a lot of their hands. If you can make your opponents fold their entire range because their range is clearly not the nuts, well, then you'll be able to crush them, right? So a lot of the players who really thrive at $500,000 buy-in tournaments, 500 to $1,000 buy-in tournaments, not $500,000 buy-in tournaments, 500 to $1,000 buy-in tournaments, a lot of these players are just far too fancy. And you see this all the time. When I'm playing in the Poker Go studio, you'll see a very different caliber of player in the $10,000 buy-in tournaments compared to the even $25,000 buy-in tournaments. A lot of the players are really trying to push up and get in in the $10,000 buy-in games. And a lot of them are far too fancy. And I just sit there and make good hands, put my money in. If someone's far too fancy, you in turn need to try to induce them to be overly fancy against you. You want them, you want to make them think that you're going to be weak and someone they can push over. Or you want to make them think that you're super straightforward so that whenever you raise, they just fold a lot, right? So you get to get a lot of bluffs through. And whenever you have the nuts, you typically stack them. And well, that's good. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, when you know what someone does wrong, your counter strategy is not rocket science over here. My wall panel's falling off. Oh my God. Don't do that yet. Literally just put you up. Can you give some examples of fancy play syndrome? Yeah, say you uh, think people fold too often to river check raises. So you find a way to get to the river every single time and then you put in a big check raise every single time because you think when people don't bet big on the river, they always have non-premium hands, which you know may be true. That would be a very clear example of fancy play syndrome. You're going to get smashed against good players, but hey, you might actually be really good against bad players if they're going to bet half pot on the river with everything besides the nuts and they're going to fold all of it to a raise. So that's really the thing is that these fancy plays can be very good if you know that they, through through data, that they are maximally exploitative plays. And to be fair, a lot of the absolute best players online don't play GTO. They run the GTO solver against the strategies they see their players, use, their opponents using in general, right? So say you know when people bet half pot on the river, they just like never have the nuts for whatever reason. Again, that's not a spot that I'm saying that happens. But let's just pretend that's the case. Their new adjusted strategy becomes when the opponent bets half pot on the river, just check shove almost every time and you'll crush your opponent, right? But that's not going to work against good players. They're going to crush you because they're going to be far more balanced. And if you are way out of balance and your opponents are just far closer to being in balance, you're going to get demolished. A good way to cure both playing too honestly and fancy play syndrome is to start with GTO ranges. GTO ranges are usually a little bit looser than straightforward players want to play. And they're also a little bit tighter than the fancy players want to play. We have a poker coaching app. Check it out. We have full GTO ranges there. We also have um, brand new multi-way charts in pokercoaching.com for cash games, both with and without rake. Make sure you check those out. Make sure you utilize those. Because that'll keep you in line. When your card dead, should you play wider? Well, it depends on what your opponents think. Some people think that the that, that you have not played a hand in 30 minutes. Therefore, you must be tight. When I see someone not play a hand for 30 minutes, I think they got bad cards. 
those are very different things. If you got bad cards, that should not really impact me and my adjustment much at all, right? You just got bad cards. I realize you can get bad cards for 30 minutes. It happens. But, but, but some people will think that you must have the nuts because you have not raised in 30 minutes. So as your opponents are worse and they don't understand variance, you can start making more and more exploitative plays. Do not use the same strategies your opponents use. This can apply in a million different ways. One that comes up all the time that I hear from people is I play one, two, no limit cash games and everyone in my game raises to $15 preflop. No one folds to a $6 raise. Why are you recommending a $6 raise? Everyone's going to laugh at me if I make a $6 raise because that's far too small for my game. And that's asinine. You have to realize that if your opponents are not beating one to no limit, because if they were, they would have moved up already. If they're not winning and they're using a strategy, odds are that strategy is not good. You should look at their plays with a very critical eye and think, if my opponents who cannot win at this game are using this play, this may not be the best play. And especially if you see players that higher stakes who have succeeded using a very different play, a very obviously different play, like in most cash games, people use a two big blind raise or a 2.5 big blind raise or a three big blind raise at the high stakes, especially in tough games, whereas in the smaller stakes, they're using seven big blind raises. Maybe the seven big blind raise is wrong, right? And I think a lot of people don't think that. They think that they should copy their opponent's strategies. And that is a blunder. If you look at losing players and think, I should copy them. You're not going to make it. You are not going to make it. Another good example. Comes up all the time. Say uh, your opponent gets all in with aces and they get bad beat and they get mad and they throw a fit and then they go on tilt and they lose all their money on the next hand because they think that's what they're supposed to do because they're immature and they're a baby. And everyone in your game does this. Should you do it too? Well, obviously not. That's stupid. But... A lot of people do it. They think everybody around me gets mad and tilted when they lose, so I should get mad and tilted when I lose. And that's asinine. Even if you're bad at poker, equally bad as the regular one to no limit player, and you just don't lose all of your money going on tilt the next few hands after you get unlucky, and all of your opponents do, you'll be a nice winner. Because someone's going to be getting unlucky all the time. That's how poker works, right? And that's that. When you copy them, you'll get the same results as them in the long run. That is exactly accurate. Can I talk about the go-to-market UPS for multi-way charts on poker coaching versus GTO multi-way chart? I don't even know what you're talking about right now. On poker coaching, our apps are included and free. Check them out. Enjoy. Go use them. They are, well, I know I know how we solved our charts, and they are very, very accurate. I don't know exactly what GTO Wizards done. I presume they're good, too, though. Well, I'd be going to Borgata in January. I didn't even know Borgata, Borgata had a January tournament. I'll write that down. I'll look that up. Where's my pen? Borgata January. I know Poker Go is having a tournament series at the beginning of January. I may or may not go play that. Hopefully they, if they put it on, if they stream it, I'll probably go. If uh, they don't stream it, I probably won't go. Got to get that attention, you know? Use intelligent preflop raise sizes. I literally just said that. We have a nice chart here discussing preflop raise sizes. Take a screenshot, enjoy it. Playing a World Series of Poker 6-max tournament. Any tips? Most people adjust poorly to the fact that it is 6-max, even though the game does not change much at all. There are almost no differences. 
Use mixed strategies or develop implementable GTO strategies. All right, we're starting to get kind of difficult here. Um, well, look. Actually, I don't even have a chart here. We'll get. We'll, I'm sure I'm going to get to this later in this book. But essentially, you want to play a strategy that is either close to the GTO strategy, which involves using mixed strategies, where sometimes you make one play and sometimes you make another play with the same hand, or you work really hard to develop implementable strategies. Um, from in position, I actually think it's pretty fine just to play strong implementable strategies. From out of position, you very often do need to use mixed strategies. We've seen this a ton in the poker coaching homework at pokercoaching.com, where from in position, a lot of your hands are using close to 100% frequencies or something like that, and life's easy. Out of position, though, it gets way more difficult, and you do need to develop mixed strategies. We have info on squeezing against multiple limpers. We'll see. Am I going to Prague? Not this year. I've been to Prague many years, but... Not this year. I'm going to the Bahamas in a week. Pokercoaching.com is the best value of a training site. I think it's not only the best value. I think it is the best site. Can you imagine the thing that is both the best and the best value? Think of the value, am I right? 57 likes. Click the like button, everyone. For in position, 3-bet polarized. Hope you already know this. From out of position. Is that the next chapter? It better be. From out of, uh, from the small blind. There you go. 3-bet linear. Linear Lee? Linearly, maybe? From the big blind, three bet, the best hands and strong suited hands. Slightly different. Slightly different. You know what? I'll show you this. Uh, okay, from the small blind. Here is small blind GTO three betting strategy. As you see, it is very linear, right? A lot of the best hands, a lot of good strong hands in this region, right? But from the big blind when you're three betting, it's going to be more hands up here, good, good big hands, but then also some low suited connected stuff. And that gets that becomes even more true as your range gets wider and wider. So it's not really hands in this region and this region so much. So it's not just strong linear hands. It's the best hands plus suited connected stuff. And as your range gets wider and wider, the suited connected block gets lower and lower. So as your range gets wider and wider, because your opponent's raising wider and wider, your suited connected bluffs type hands from the small uh, from the big blind are going to be in this region. But from the small blind, it's all, almost always going to be the hands in the top region. Important to note. Adjust for the effective stack depth. That's very important. I just showed you that preflop raise sizing chart. Don't need to go through that. Play tighter when facing larger raise sizes. Hey, we talked about that seven big blind preflop raise ahead of the time. Uh, when people make a seven big blinds preflop, you should play super duper tight, even if their ranges are normal-ish. If their ranges are wide, yeah, you get to play a little bit wider. But against big raises, you should be playing very tightly. What is this book? 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em. There should be a link below. Check it out. It's my new book. It'll be out very, very, very soon. We ordered a bunch of copies, but they sold out immediately. I thought they would. I actually stole this idea from a, a YouTube channel called Gotham Chess. We just had a book come out. Where is it? Where did I put it? I bought the guy's book. I like the guy's YouTube content. I've learned a lot about his stuff from chess. My kids are learning to play chess. So I figured I better get good again. And uh, he had a new book come out. So I observed how he promoted and shared his book. I bought it. I may not even get around to reading it. I just like to support the guy because I appreciate the guy's content. Play wider ranges with an ante and no rake. With an ante and no rake, such as in a poker tournament, you should play wider ranges. Play tighter ranges with no ante and a rake. With no ante and a rake, like most small stakes cash games, you actually have to play really, really tight. You can see this very clearly illustrated in the poker coaching app. You'll see that we have... Um, Different charts for tournaments, cash games with a rake, and cash games without a rake. And that is very relevant. Will more hard copies be available? Most definitely. They're already being printed. 
If you like Gotham chess, make sure you look at his video where he had Google Bard play against ChatGPT and chess. It was very, very funny. Yes, there are going to be more hard copies. This book actually does not officially come out until December 7th, so 10 days, 11 days from now, something like that. Properly combat limpers. Chapter 18, someone asked. Will we, um, will we, will we discuss combating limpers? Obviously. Most obviously. Clearly, definitely. We're discussing all the spots in this scenario. Well, all the common spots. And you need to know how to play against limpers. What was my IQ? They claimed I was quote unquote gifted as a child. I think it was, it's not particularly high. It's like 120 or something. You wish there was a Jonathan Little audio, haha. Well, go to amazon.com and click on the audible version. And that was me reading the book. I've actually read, see all those books back there? Let's get the big screen. See all those books back there? This entire row, I published, edited, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the vast majority of them that I could have read for an audiobook, I read. So if you get any book of Jonathan Little's on Audible, it was me reading it. I sat in a little box, half the size of my little office, and I read the book. This book was actually a really quick read because it's literally like as fast as I, it's, it's, it's written kind of like I speak. I've actually found that whenever I write the book and I edit the book, I can read the book really, really fast. <laughs> uh, but whenever I write the book and someone else edits it or someone else writes it and I edit it, I can't read it at all. I go so slowly. I had this other book. Uh, where is it? Here's one of them. Excelling at No Limit Hold'em. You see this book right here? This book with content by the great Phil Helmuth, Mike Sexton, Olivia Bousquet, Chris Moneymaker, Liv Boree, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on and on. This book took me like 50 hours to read. 50 hours. Ugh. 50 hours in a little box is a long time. Too long, if you ask me. This new book, almost the same size, maybe 100 pages shorter, took me like 18 hours. A little bit shorter. I got through it twice as fast because I wrote it and I edited it. Probably combat limpers, obviously. Okay, let's fast forward a little bit. We're going to skip forward. We're not going to have time to go through all these anyway. Oh, got to get back on the screen here. What are we talking about now? Bet larger on dynamic flops. Ooh, here we go. 120 is high. 120 is like high-ish, but not super genius. I'm definitely not a super genius. Not at all. I I've talked to plenty of super geniuses, and they they they're on another level. I just work hard. <laughs> uh, you have amazing work ethic. Yeah, I mean, look, I I like to finish things. I've learned that I'm a completionist. I like getting stuff done. And if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. So perhaps it is... Um, what's the right word? Integrity, where you say you're going to do what you do. Integrity is kind of a weird word because I think a lot of people think it means it's always a positive thing. But if you do what you say you're going to do, I think that's like the actual definition of integrity. And if I say I'm going to do something, I typically do it. And um, sometimes that, that gets me in trouble because if I say I'm going to do something for like three years, I'll do it. Oh, man, I, I've done a few commitments for PokerCoaching.com. One was like a five-year-long commitment, and I did it. I finished it. Whew, that was a grind. I was making like 20 bucks an hour doing it, but I did it only for five years. <laughs> you got to be careful with that. One time back a long time ago, I had a poker forum on the training site, and I, I guaranteed I would answer every single hand question. Well, you know what happened? We got a million hand questions. And I'm like, 
I can't do this. I don't know what to tell you. I'm getting a million hand questions here. Uh, so we had, we had to kill it. It sucks to have to kill something. But look, you got to do what you got to say you're going to do at the end of the day. And I'm, I think I'm pretty good at that. Okay, bet larger on dynamic flops. What is a dynamic flop? If the flop is more dynamic, meaning the current premium hands are somewhat likely to be downgraded substantially on the turn or river, the larger you should bet. This is the flop section, obviously. As the board is more static, meaning there are currently premium hands that are likely to stay premium hands on the turn and river, the smaller you should bet. Okay, so what does that mean? That means that when the board has a lot of draws, but no current nut hand that is likely to be the nuts by the river, usually you want to be betting bigger. And on top of that, more polarized. So on a 9-8-3 board, this is a three, it's behind the, behind the thing. On a 9-8-3 board, we're going to be betting polarized and often using a big size. Here's the GTO strategy. The pink is bet 7.7, .7, which is like pot. This is bet 3.5, which is, you know, half-ish pot. And there's going to be some checking. So as you see, a mix of strategies, but we are betting bigger, especially with hands that are likely good but vulnerable. A big takeaway from here is you see the pink color. The pink color is often using the bigger size. And as you can see, overpairs to the nine, remember it's nine, eight, three. Overpairs to the nine are often betting big. And that's going to be a very, very clear thing. Same thing with top pair, top kicker often does go big, as well as some draws that can't really win at the showdown. So we see some random overcards, we see some backdoor flush draws, et cetera, et cetera. On king nine, three, all spades, this is a board we're going to be betting more frequently, quite often, and using a small size. So you see now we're actually betting 1.5 big blinds. So on the 983, we gave it a 1.5 big blind option. But on the 983 board, we were we were checking uh 38%, but and then often you know using bigger bet sizes in general, never using the small size. On a three flush board, where a flush is very likely to be the effective nuts by the river, we're using a lot of tiny sizes, right? And essentially what happens here is there are these ideas of range advantage and nut advantage, which I discussed thoroughly in pokercoaching.com. And um, getting sidetracked by the, by the comments over here. As you have the range advantage, you typically bet more often. As you have the nut advantage, you typically bet smaller. I'm sorry. As you have the nut advantage, you typically bet bigger. And on three flush boards, both players have a lot of flushes, so you don't really have the nut advantage. But you do have the range advantage, and that's why you're betting frequently and small. We need to know stack depths. We need to know stack depths. 40 big blinds deep in this example. It's in the book. Don't worry. This would not change too incredibly much if you were deeper. It would change some as, you're, as you get shallower. Develop strong heuristics. Here are some strong ones right off the top of back. Continuation bet more often when you have the range advantage. I just, I just told you that. Continuation bet less often when you do not have the range advantage. Continuation bet using a larger size when you have the nut advantage. Continuation bet using a smaller size when you do not have the nut advantage. Continuation bet using a larger size on dynamic flops. Continuation bet using a smaller size on static flops, right? You want to go through and develop a lot of rules that to some extent apply to most scenarios. And I say it right here, as you continue studying GTO flop strategies, you'll find that these patterns repeat themselves over and 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 over, and over again. Okay? When will the Lexi Gavin Mather book be coming out? Very soon. I actually just wrote the forward for it. Just the other day. Check more often from out of position on the flop. This is something a lot of people do wrong. I did it wrong myself for a very long time, where I would raise pre-flop and then bet the flop very frequently. And that was a mistake. I would bet frequently in all scenarios because people I, people folded too often. But as you play against better and better players, they will not fold too often. And that's going to force you 
to check far more often from out of position, usually using mixed strategies like we discussed before. Here, for example, let's take a look. Let's say the flop comes queen of spades, six of spades, four of hearts. You raise from the low jack and the button calls. 40 big blinds deep. Flop comes queen, six, four. This is a spot where I think a lot of people bet every time. But as you see, you should be checking 29% of the time. Wait, no, that's not right. That's not right. Here we are. This is right. We should be checking 65% of the time. Is this even on your page? 65% mm. of the time we need to be checking here. I'm like, that, that, the first the first number is not right. <laughs> that's, on a, that's on a different flop. Queen 6-4, where you don't really have the range or the nut advantage. You are doing less betting, and you're betting small. So you're not betting all that often to begin with, and you're betting using a small size. you got to check a lot from out of position. What about on ace 5-5? Five, five? Even though you have a lot of aces, you don't really have any fives, and your opponent's going to have some pairs and all that, so you still don't get to bet all that often, only about half the time. How can you buy the book outside of... U.S., Canada, and U.K. I think you can still use Amazon, but also go to dnbpoker.com. dnbpoker.com. Is it worth using slightly different best sizes in various scenarios? I mean, this goes back to developing an implementable strategy. Uh, you know, if, if in, in theory you wanted to use just like a one-third or two-third pot bet size on the flop every time, you could develop a strategy that won't lose you all that much EV compared to GTO. But you certainly should be using different bet sizes, especially as you're trying to get better and better and better on some specific boards, like the King 7-3 board, all spades, King 9-3, all spades. You saw that we want to use like 20% pot, right? Um, check out Amazon. Amazon. Amazon ships almost everywhere. It'll get there eventually. Also, you know, if, if, if you're really concerned about shipping, you can get the ebook or the audiobook. Let's see. What else we want to talk about? We're going to fast forward some more. We're running out of time. It's 943 already. Goodness gracious. After you bet the flop, bet the turn polarized. Did you all know this? Take a second. Think about this. Here, I'll read it to you. When you continuation bet the flop and your opponent calls, your opponent presumably folded the bottom portion of their range, meaning their range is going to the turn has been strengthened. However, your flop range may or may not have been strengthened because if you continuation bet the flop with all or most of your range, then you have all or most of your entire pre-flop range on the turn, which will inevitably contain many junky hands. That's a long sentence. I think it needs to be one sentence though because it is indeed one thought. When you bet the flop and your opponent calls, they folded all of their trash. Okay. When you bet the flop, often with more than just good hands, you have a lot of garbage going to the turn. So you no longer have the range advantage going to the turn when you bet the flop and your opponent calls. So if you don't have the range advantage, we literally just had a heuristic section 15 chapters ago or whatever it was. When you don't have the range advantage, you bet less frequently. And when you are betting polarized to begin with, because you're betting less frequently, typically you're gonna bet using a bigger size. You're essentially pushing the nut advantage or whatever part of the nut advantage you have when you bet the flop and your opponent calls, when you decide to keep betting on the turn. Very important concept. A lot of people bet the flop, they think they got to bet again because, well, their opponent didn't raise. But no, 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 no. After you bet the flop and your opponent calls, you got to bet the turn polarized. You got to do it. Then we go through some examples. There's lots of examples in this book. Bet the turn larger when you have the nut advantage. Yep. You looked up my book on Amazon and the first recommendation was the Ultimate Lottery Player's Handbook. All right, good luck. Hope you win. 
Bet larger on dynamic turns. Remember how we said you should bet larger on dynamic flops? Well, you should bet larger on dynamic turns. Consider queen, six, four, two spades. We bet the flop already kind of polarized. Say the turn's a jack of hearts. Ooh, I can already tell you. On the jack of hearts, we are going to be betting polarized. We're going to be blasting it like over pot. Thirteen point three big blinds or eight point nine big blinds. I don't know how much is in the pot here. Uh, I don't know. Not going to go through and read it. But we're betting big. We're betting big when we do decide to bet. Notice we're checking half the time on the jack of hearts turn, even though we have a lot of uh, queens and jacks. So let's take a look. I bet jacks are going to be doing a ton of checking and some bad queens. So let's see. Black is check. So take a look. Lots of jacks are in the black color, right? They're doing a lot of checking. Lots of bad queens are checking. This is a spot where I think a lot of people think they should always be betting top pairs, but no, no, no. If it's not good, you do not want to be check betting top pairs. Notice under pairs like tens, nines, eights are always checking, right? Your medium strength hands have to do a lot of checking on the turn when you bet them on the flop and you get called. And when you do bet the turn, you're going to be betting very polarized. So queen jack, what was the board? Queen jack, uh, six, four. So let's look at seven, five, five, three, and king 10. King 10 betting every time open into draw, right? What about seven, five suited? Not betting. What about five, three? Not betting. Why would we not bet these, but bet the king 10? Well, you can bet the king 10 and then not fold because you have the overcard. Five, three, and seven, five, if you bet and get raised, that's a disaster. At least I presume we're probably 40 big blinds deep still and you have to fold. So that's another nice heuristic. If you if you bet a draw and would have to fold it to a raise, it probably wasn't a good bet. So you'd rather bet trashier draws. So what are trashy draws on king, uh, queen, six, four, jack? Well, take a look at this. Ace two and ace three offsuit. Love betting. Why? They have an overcard. They have an overcard, and if you bet and you get raised, you don't care. You can fold. Cool stuff, huh? All right, what else? Lead when the board is good for your range. Oh boy. A lead is when you to, is when you bet into the aggressor from the previous betting round. A lot of poker players in 2023. Is it 2024 yet? No, 2023. A lot of poker players in 2023 do not know that the term lead means to bet into the aggressor on the previous betting round. They think lead means to bet. That is not what lead means. I don't know why they are screwing up this term left and right. It is not a good play. Or not a good, not a not a good use of terminology. So when you check call the flop and you bet into your opponent on the turn, that is a lead. Okay. This implies you check call to bet from the previous betting round and get to act first on the next betting round, right? From a GTO point of view, you should lead on the turn or river when it substantially increases your equity and expected value because you will then have the range and or nut advantage. You should not be leading on neutral or bad turns. So when are some really common spots to lead? This is when you check call the flop and it's on you on the turn. When a middle or low four straight comes, can we just say donk? Yeah, donk and lead are the same thing, but donk is kind of derogatory. You don't want to you don't want to berate your opponents for the poor plays they make. That's a bad bad thing to do. So it's a lead. Got to be a little, little more friendly, a little more a little more caring to the opponents. All right, you want to be leading when a middle or low bad card comes. You want to be a four, four a middle or low four straight comes. A middle or low three straight comes, assuming they don't have a lot of the top pair. A middle or low bottom card on the flop pairs because your opponent's often not going to be betting all those on the flop. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, you know. And when an ace high four flush comes. Remember that very early chapter we went through to talking about um, 
combinatorics about how when there's an ace on the board, it really removes a lot of the combinations of flushes from your hand, from your opponent, from your either player's range. Well, if they're not raising a whole lot of other suited hands to begin with, because let's say they raise from early position, but you called from the big blind with all sorts of suited hands, well, now you actually have a ton of flushes, and that gives you a nut advantage. So you get to lead a lot on an ace-high four flush turn, especially if there's like another high card or two. Do we want to bet king five of hearts on the queen, jack, six, four turn? I don't know. Maybe? I, I already lost the spot. I don't know. Go back and read the book. <laughs> Okay, so we go through and go through a lot of spots where you should be leading. Lead, 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 lead. Let's talk about this ace-high four flush, because I think a lot of people don't believe me on this one. Let's say the pot comes king nine three. You check. Low jack bets, 25% pot. You call. By the way, you only lead when you're kind of shallow stacked. Leading deep stacked is almost never a thing. Okay? There are some spots, potentially multi-way, where it is a thing. Not heads up, though. Okay, king nine three. Ace of spades turn. The ace and the king on the board, plus the nine, are really, 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 really good for the big blind caller because the big blind caller is going to have all the low suited connected stuff and the initial raiser will not. Mm. Here is your strategy on the ace of spades turn. Yeah, so okay. Take a look at this. Ace of spades turn. Um, we should be betting tiny 36% of the time. Pretty often. King, nine, three, ace. Look at all these random nines being used as bluffs. Kind of crazy, huh? King, nine, three, ace. Notice the kings are not leading because they can reasonably win at the showdown. The nines actually don't win all that often anymore. Um, notice we're leading with lots of flushes. These are all ace high. Or these are not ace high flushes. What I'm saying, the queen, the jack, and the ten. These, these are flushes in this region, right? These are leading a lot of the time. So we're leading with a lot of flushes and then just a bunch of nonsense. Cool stuff. To further demonstrate this concept, 40 big blinds deep. Low jack raises, you call from the big blind. By the way, this applies more against early position raisers than late position raisers because late position raisers have more suited connected stuff. Okay. Low jack raises, you call from the big blind, 40 big blinds deep. Fop plums, king, queen, 10, all spades. You check, they bet 25% pot, you call. The turn is the ace of spades. You should lead 25% pot with all of your range. All of it. Your entire range should lead on that... Royal flush board. Why should you lead with your entire range on the king, queen, ten, ace, all spades turn? Well, your opponent's not raising a whole lot of offsuit hands that contain a jack of spades. Yeah, they have ace jack, maybe king jack, maybe queen jack, and pocket jacks. But you have a lot of defense with the random jack of spades. All the Broadway hands, right? Jack nine, jack eight. You have a lot of suited jacks, jack six suited, right? Maybe have the jack four offsuit if you're feeling like getting spicy. So you have a lot of jacks. They have no jack of spades. You have a lot of jacks. Well, they have almost no jack of spades. You have a lot of jack of spades. That's going to result in you getting to lead very frequently. Also, they don't have a whole lot of low cards, right? Even here, like a nine of spades or an eight of spades or seven of spades is pretty good because the low jack's not raising a whole lot of offsuit hands containing an eight of spades, right? So you're betting small with a range slash nut advantage. And then you'll proceed going forward. On the king, queen, uh, 10, jack of spades turn, you get to lead about 50% of the time. And then on the nine of spades turn, you get to lead about 12% of the time. So like I said, the, the ace is very, very important. You really want the ace to be on the board. Are these strategies for cash games or tournaments or what? Both games play the same, presuming the ranges in play are the same. And the stack depths in play are the same. As you get to be about 40 big blinds uh, deep or shallower, that's when you start to get to lead a lot. 
On this exact scenario, though, you'll get to lead even deep stack because, look, if you're leading 100% of the time, 40 big blinds deep, you're going to be leading a decent amount of the time, at least some portion of the time. We talk about facing a turn lead, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about check raising the turn. Let's fast forward. Let's go to this. Overfold against most players' aggression on the river. Why would ranges and cash games and tournaments be the same? Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. It depends on your opponent's tendencies. They should not be. You should be playing wider ranges in general in cash games and tournaments. But if you consider, let's say, a low jack range in a cash game. No, in a tournament. What am I saying? A low jack range in a cash game may be sort of like an under-the-gun range in a tournament. So even though the positions will be different, the ranges may be fairly close, Right? All poker is, is comparing your range to your opponent's range and figuring out how they interact with each other in the scenario that you're in. And it doesn't really matter what position people are in, assuming one player is still in position and the other is still out of position. The, the strategies used are going to be the same, as presuming the ranges are the same. Like, say say someone raises and you call in the big blind with, like, super-duper nitty range, as you would play if you raise under the gun, let's just pretend. Well, you're going to be doing a lot of betting because you're going to naturally have the range advantage, even though you were not the preflop aggressor. All right, anyway. You're going to want to overfold against most players' aggression on the river. This is obviously an exploitative scenario. I actually say that right here. We had a few previous chapters discussing GTO strategy, but most people do not bluff nearly often enough. Therefore, you should be overfolding a lot. You want to call down a lot when the draws miss on the river. I think in Game of Gold, someone just made some hero call or some hero fold. I don't remember what it was. I was listening to Dale Negreanu's podcast, That Poker Podcast, where they go through and they talk about all sorts of stuff, but they're really going through the game of gold a lot. Kind of, well, I'm not going to spoil it for you. <laughs> Maybe I already did by just saying that. But um, there was some spot where someone had a lot of potential bluffs and either they called or they folded or whatever. But this is a very common thing where when there are a lot of potential bluffs, your opponent will just kind of logically and naturally use some of them, right? But if there are almost no logical slash potential bluffs, your opponent's going to really struggle to find a bluff. So say a lot of draws miss on the river and your opponent has just like a lot of unpaired high cards like queen high, jack high, etc. That's a really, really good spot to find very light call downs. If they don't have very many nonsense hands, like say they raise under the gun and you call in the big blind and the flop comes ace, king, queen. Are they really going to just triple barrel it off with pocket tens or eight, seven suited with no flush draw? Like, no, they're just not going to do that very often, right? I mean, maybe they do sometimes, but most people aren't. So that's the spot where you're going to want to be overfolding when your opponent triple barrels. Whereas on the whatever draw heavy board, you want to be more inclined to find hero calls. Like right here, queen, jack, three, seven. Lots of draws on the turn. When they bet the turn and you call, you're going to be looking to be pretty hero call-y on the river. Anyway, we go through and discuss that a little bit. Value bet wide against calling stations. If I could make this like bigger font, I would make this um, much bigger. Value bet really wide against calling stations. Format adjustments. Okay. As the big stack at the final table. So here we talk about playing final table scenarios. We're not going to go through all this today because we're out of time. Obviously, we discuss middle stack. We discuss short stack, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As the tiny stack, we discuss playing tiny stacks. Little tiny stacks. And then we discuss when to make a deal. This is actually close to stolen from a blog post that I wrote a long time ago. It was called when, to, when not to make a deal, which is almost always. 
I want to make it perfectly clear. You should feel no obligation to make a deal with your opponents, even if it is the customary thing to do in your local casino. The link provided redirects to page not found. Well, that's not good. Try it again. Or go to Amazon, type in Amazon, 100 essential tips to master no limit hold'em. Here we talk about ICM, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Adjust logically to abnormal cash game structures. I don't know why in cash games, they are now throwing in all sorts of nonsense structures like, well, straddles was the first nonsense structure, three, game, uh, three blinds. Did you all know that limit hold'em used to be played with one blind? How boring was that event? They got, they got frisky and made it a two-blind game, and now all the games are two-blind games. Then they um, started adding antis. Okay, fine. What changes when an ante's in play? Well, the pot's bigger, right? What happens when you have a bomb pot? Let's just take a second and think about this logically. A bomb pot is when everyone puts in some amount of money pre-flop. Sometimes a little, sometimes a lot. If it's a little, well, the pot's not that big. When it's a, a big bomb pot, well, uh, you know, that, that changes things. So you may have like a... One-to-one -one stack to pot ratio. But what really changed is nine or 10 or eight players, whatever, saw the flop. And when eight players see the flop, you have to adjust substantially. Yeah, the stand-up game where you're the, you have to win a hand before everybody else, or you don't want to be the last one to win a hand. What, what changes, right? Now, if you don't win this, you lose some amount of equity, some portion of the time, and you got to consider that. Do seven game, jack four game, 10-2 game, all those. And, and this is really what, what you want to ask. Like, what has actually changed? What if the pot starts larger? What if there are additional blinds and straddles? What if there is a button straddle? Ugh, I hate button straddles. They're so bad for the game. Bomb pots. What about bomb pots? Other topics. You do not know everything, myself included. Realize that variants exist. Your edge will diminish over time. Ooh, this is, a, this is one that makes a lot of people sad because they think if they get good at poker, they're going to win forever and then life's easy. Hate to break it to you. You got to keep learning. Track your results, obviously. So many things are so obvious to me, but uh, I know people don't do them. So <laughs> you got to give people a reminder. And you know, look, this is this is uh, the thing about this book. If you pick up this book, 100 Essential Tips to Master Your Limit Hold'em, check it out. There are links below. If they don't work, just type it into Amazon. You may know a lot of the stuff in this book already, but if you pick up even one tip from this book, it's gonna be well worth the price of admission. That's the great thing about poker is that you all are all playing poker for a lot of money relative to this price of this book. And if you pick up even one thing, it's it's so valuable. I mean, look, I go through basically all poker training content that, that comes out that I think is produced by good poker players who I respect. At least I respect their game. And I don't learn a whole lot from it. Very often I learn uh, what's not good, <laughs> what's not good to do. But I, um, in terms of, you know, video production and whatnot, but... If I learn one thing, it's worth it. Even if it takes me like 10 hours to go through it, if I learn one thing that's going to make me $10,000 at some point down the road because I'm playing for high stakes, it's so worth it. You're afraid about the start. Is there a guide to get started with PokerCoaching.com? Send us an email, support at PokerCoaching.com, but I would definitely recommend, if you're totally new to poker, go through PokerCoaching.com slash fundamentals first. It's a free crash course. If you're already pretty good at poker, go through the cash game or tournament masterclass depending on uh, which game you want to play. Get the best seat in the room. So many people think, oh, you're a bum hunter. That's dirty. No, but at the same time, some seats are way more profitable than others. And if you can figure out a way to logically get there, then that's going to be good for you. Buy in for intelligent, intelligent amounts in cash games. Do not buy in for the maximum every time. If you do that, probably not ideal.
Playing games that are beatable. Ah, dirty bum hunter. Taking advantage of the fish. If you don't play in games that you're not going to have an edge in, you're not going to win. Hate to break it to you. I like to win. Put in substantial volume. In 2023, people think this is impossible to do. They think that no one can put in substantial volume anymore because um, they're lazy or they'll go crazy. You got to realize just because you're lazy and you can't put in substantial volume does not mean that other people cannot. I've put in a lot of volume and a lot of my friends have put in a lot of volume. And it turns out volume cures variance. You'll grind out whatever your expected value is. And, uh, you know, I think what happens to a lot of people, this is going to sound, again, not trying to offend anyone. A lot of people start off their poker career running very hot. Because if they didn't, they would have quit. And they think they're going to win, let's say, $300 per hour forever. Whereas in reality, their real win rate is something like $20 per hour. And then their edge goes down. Well, they're not their edge goes down, but their results they're seeing goes down. And they get disgruntled. They think, oh, I thought I was going to win $300 an hour. Now I'm only winning $20. This is going to happen to Slick Rick, unfortunately. Slick Rick won 100000 bucks in the first two months. I was thinking he was going to win like you know 10000 bucks a month. And, you know, that's... Uh, He's, he's going to have downswings, inevitably. He's not going to win every tournament he plays, inevitably, right? And he may start to get disgruntled because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to prepare him the best I can to this. And I think he realizes it. But it's hard when it's your first time going through it where you think something's going to happen and then it doesn't, right? And then you get disgruntled. And then you don't want to put in volume anymore because why would you play when you're only going to make 20 bucks an hour instead of 300, Right. But putting in substantial volume lets you know what is actually possible and what your actual win rate is within reason. I know, I know there's still a lot of variance, but you got to put in good volume. What do you mean by getting the best seat in the room? You want the bad players on your right at the highest stakes you can reasonably play. And you can pick the table you play at and you can pick the seat you get to some extent. So do that within reason, within reason. You know, there's, I think the problem is, is that everything I say is within reason and like, don't be an idiot about it. But a lot of players go overboard and they're idiots about it. Keep an adequate bankroll, cash game management. We talk about cash game bankroll requirements. Show some night. Look at that beautiful graph. Isn't that a beautiful graph? Just kind of straight up. Take a look at this. Though. This player here broke even for like 30-something thousand hands. Beautiful graph. You can't ask for anything else. 30,000 hand break-even stretch. That's a long time in live poker. We talk about moving up or down in stakes. When to quit a cash game session. Tournament bankroll management. Beautiful graph again. Broke even for like 500 tournaments. You know, you know, standard stuff. And the book goes on and on and on and on and on. So that's it. That's the book. 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em. I hope you enjoy it. I worked hard on the book. It was a lot of fun. I got to put together a lot of good, useful, applicable pieces of advice that I think will, uh, you know, they make a good book. They make a good, quick read. Why can't I get this thing on the screen? What is happening? Whatever. Here it is. Make it full screen here. 100 Essential Tips to Master No Limit Hold'em by me, Jonathan Little. I wrote the whole thing. I edited the whole thing. We had some poker coaching members get in there and help me with the typos. It's a fun book, a good read, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. That's me for today. If you enjoyed today's video, do me a favor. Click the like and subscribe button down below. If you have a job, should you follow bankroll management? Depends on what your goals are. Come on, everyone. Come on, everyone. Read the book. The book discusses this. Can't wait till it hits your Kindle. Hopefully very, very soon. I think December 7th. Sorry, you may have to wait a little bit longer, but it'll be coming out super duper soon. At PokerCoaching.com right now in the Discord, Louis Philippe, who is here in the chat the entire time, is running a study session. I don't know what they're reviewing today, but it's going to be something good, useful, and educational. So if you got in PokerCoaching.com through the Black Friday sale, 
get in there. This is just another included resource at pokercoaching.com. We have lots and lots of study sessions on a regular basis. Um, also, we're going to be having Cyber Week sales at pokercoaching.com if you want to learn more from me. If you like today's show, if you like this type of content, we have a lot of it there too by not just myself, but a lot of the absolute best poker players in the world. We just hired Chris Brewer to make a lot of content at pokercoaching.com. And that's good because I think he's literally one of the absolute best poker players in the world. And I've already learned a lot from his content. So that's there as well as a whole lot of other stuff. Good luck in your games. Have fun. Make the most of your opportunities. Thank you for being here. I don't know when my next episode of this show is uh, because I'm going to the Bahamas. Let me see if I can even find it. I'm going to the Bahamas. Uh, I think I might have a show on the 18th. Yeah, the 18th of December, I'll be back. I'm going to go try to win a bracelet in the Bahamas. I probably won't because that's how math works, but I will do my absolute best. If you're there, make sure you say hi. If you're not there, wish me luck. I sold a little bit of action on pokerstake.com for all of you. Tiny pieces. I think there's some left in like the last bullet of the 5K and maybe the 25K. Check that out. Whatever, do whatever you want. Good luck. Have fun. Thank you for being here. If you want to really show support, get the book, 100 Essential Tips to Master in a Limit Hold'em. I wish you all the best holiday season. 